so welcome to this little discussion on antimicrobial stewardship. Uh, my name is Charlie Mossler. I am a faculty member at the College of Pharmacy at the University of Finley, of Finley which is in northwest Ohio, uh, about a four-hour drive, just a little over 200 miles from here, um, up where the snow is starting to fly um, and, and the fun. I saw Monday we're supposed to get two to three inches, so I guess it's November. Um, anyhow, I, a little bit about me. My, my background as a pharmacist has... Um, enabled me to spend quite a bit of time, especially in my younger years before kids, um, doing a lot of medical mission, um, short-term, anything from, from one week to about five weeks um, in, in a wide variety of places around the world. And, and so that's what's really got me interested in this sort of thing. Uh, my real job, it, besides teaching, is in geriatric pharmacy, working with patients in nursing homes. So it's, I have this very weird, I like things, in many very different places. And so when they first asked me to talk on, on antimicrobial stewardship, I thought, you know what, that's something that, that I think I could do because it's interesting. It's, it's a current topic. It's been a current topic, topic for 10 or so years now. And, and honestly, I kept putting this, putting, preparing this talk off, putting it off, putting it off. I was like, it's going to be no problem putting it together. And then, of course, I start putting it together and what I find out from – a global perspective, antimicrobial stewardship is not necessarily something that's well understood, I would say, in many countries around the world. It's not something that is really being pushed in many parts of the world, unlike what we witness here in the United States with Joint Commission, the CDC. I mean, everybody, on everybody's case, even in nursing homes now, they have to have an antimicrobial stewardship plan for each individual nursing home. They have to have their own specific plan for them and their physicians and whatnot. And so it, it's a, a very different thing. And so, so, so it was under that that I started putting this together. And it's like, this is really interesting because really from a global perspective, it seems like we're just now starting this trend that's been ongoing here in the United States. Um, so one of the ways that, that I like to, to start every discussion I've had here at GMHC over the years is to kind of get to know you guys a little bit and what, what you're doing. So how many of you are students? So five or six. So how many of you are prescribers of one variety or another? So a good chunk of you. And then nursing, pharmacy, other stuff outside. So good. So we have a, a good mix of people. How many of you have spent a significant amount of time outside the United States in some part of, of the develop, whatever you want to call it, developing world, the, the majority world, whatever? How many of you spent time out there? Okay, good. So, so I'm actually going to rely a lot on some of you guys to help with some of the talking points of this, because when I was last doing a lot of trips was really in 2000. 10, 2011 was my last, what I would call, significant sort of trip. And to be honest, what antibiotics did we give? Whatever we happened to have and whatever we thought would definitely get the job done. And we didn't really worry about this whole resistant thing. And, and looking back, it's kind of scary some of the things. And I, I mean, at the time, we were completely doing stuff with the right intention, the right frame of mind, but now we know, as with many things, right, that what we used to do maybe wasn't the best way of doing things. 
So we'll get through some of this legalese, disclosure stuff, learning objectives. Hopefully I end up smarter after learning from you guys, is how I always think of the learning objectives um, at the end of this. But, but one of the things I think is, is interesting to look at, and this TV projection is probably not going to be large enough for me in the back, so, so I'll read it to you. So Pseudomonas, I imagine most of us have heard of Pseudomonas, right? Isolated from drinking water distribution systems in Nigeria, were found to have resistance to the antibiotics genomycin and streptomycin in what percentage of isolates? And our options are 22.7, so 25-ish to 50-ish percent, 40 to about 80 percent, um, 12 to about 20 percent, less than 5 percent, greater than 95 percent. One of those is a right answer. Very random, right? Any guesses? A, how many think A? We're just all flat out guessing, right? B, C, I mean, it's, it's going to be one of those. So, so the right answer actually, and I was surprised at this, and this doesn't project very well, but is A. Up to 50% of all pseudomonas that was found just in the drinking water distribution systems in Nigeria, and I know nothing about what the distribution or the water systems in Nigeria are like. This is just what this one article was, was talking about were resistant to some pretty potent antibiotics. So, before we go much, much further, I, I, I'm kind of assumed the last five minutes or so that we're all on the same page, and that's never a good assumption to make. So what is this idea of antimicrobial resistance? What do you guys think? I should pick on the students in the room, right? That's what I would do normally. What is antimicrobial resistance? And, and, and does it... And, so. You can tell right from the term, right, what it actually is. Maybe a better question to ask is, does it happen to all antibiotics eventually? Pretty much. I mean, there have been very few cases where, you know, we can say that oh, there, there's no isolates of, of anything that have developed resistance to this. Um, one of the, the, the next slide, and I know the next slide is not going to project very well at all. Please email me if you would like a copy of these slides afterwards. We used to have a mechanism to kind of distribute them, um, and that's kind of disappeared over the years. Um, but if you want these slides, I will be very happy to share them with whomever. Um, just send me an email, and I'll send them off to you. Anyhow, so what is it when an antimicrobial loses effects, effect against a particular microorganism? This happens naturally. It's something that, just given time, it's going to change. I mean... On the way down um, today, I was listening to uh, a book on the Ebola outbreak um, by Richard Preston. It was Into the Red Zone. And he was talking about how that Ebola outbreak in 2014 um, in Liberia and in parts of West Africa, how Ebola was adapting at that time. And it's very scary to think about those viruses in that case, how they're adapting. But bacteria are doing that constantly, right? And so that happens naturally. Now... As we keep giving repeated doses of antibiotics, as we keep introducing antibiotics to these bugs, it becomes a little bit easier for it to, to, to come into play. Where all do we introduce antibiotics to bugs? What sorts of areas? Besides, when we just take a course of antibiotics for pneumonia, what other, in our everyday life, and we may not realize it, where are we coming into contact, or what what? Where are we putting antibiotics into contact with potential antimicrobial or microbes? Washing your hands, hand soap, absolutely. Livestock. Livestock is a big one. And, and I live on a farm. We have lots of, of animals that we take care of. And every once in a while, we have to give them something. 
Five years ago, I could walk into a tractor supply store and pretty much buy any antibiotic I wanted. No questions asked. It's gotten a little more difficult, but not really. I mean, you can still get a huge chunk of, of normal, what I would consider normal human use antibiotics for animals just by showing up and paying the money. So, so definitely livestock. Um, it, when we talk about what happens to antibiotics that people don't use for whatever reason, they end up flushing them or throwing them away, and then they get into the, the groundwater or the, the rivers. And so we've done, in, in Finley, Ohio, we've done some studies of the local rivers, and yeah, there's a lot of antibiotic resistance to the bacteria that they're finding in the local rivers there. And the same is true um, across, across definitely the country and around the world. So ultimately what happens, we get more difficult to treat infections. More difficult to treat infections mean people are going to pass away because of, of these diseases that we find more difficult to treat. Um, we'll talk a little bit more about this. This slide is, is very interesting. It's very easy to find. It's one the CDC likes to talk about. So I know nobody in the front row or beyond the front row is going to be able to read this slide. But this is penicillin in 1940. We identified, we, I wasn't around then, we identified antibiotic resistance to penicillin with staphylococci in 1940. That antibiotic wasn't really introduced to the marketplace broadly until 1943. So before it was even available for use outside, the military had started to use it, and others were starting to do investigations with it. Um, but really, we, you couldn't just walk into a pharmacy with a prescription for penicillin in the United States until 1943. Before that even happened... They'd identified resistance to Staphylococcus. And this just goes on and on. So tetracycline was introduced in 1950. Um, we first started getting some different tetracycline-resistant Shigella in 1959. Um, methicillin, everyone's heard of methicillin. Not an antibiotic we use much. The first, MERS, uh, the first methicillin Staphylococcus, not Staph aureus, um, came out in 1962. So really, really quick. Genomyosin, 1967 was when it was introduced. We first got the, the first genomyosin inter resistant enterococcus in 1979. So, again, you can go on and on and on. And, and as you get on down here, you get in levofloxacin, linezolid, daptomycin, ceftaroline, all those new drugs that are supposed to be more used or used more for those resistant bugs, they're starting to develop resistance already. And you guys who work in the United States, you've seen some of those. Um, isolated. Oops, wrong button. Don't push that one. So, so just to continue on with some of the U.S. statistics, 21 to 34 billion dollars per year is the cost of infections, and that's drug-resistant infections. That, not, that's not just infections. That's drug-resistant, one way, shape, or form. Eight million, eight million additional days are spent in a hospital per year in the United States due to resistant infections. 23,000 deaths per year, more than 2 million deaths um, worldwide. So 23,000 in the United States, more than 2 million deaths per year worldwide. In the United States, even though there's been this big push um, nationally to, to be careful about what antibiotics are prescribed and are we prescribing them appropriately, we found that one out of every three is still considered an unnecessary antibiotic. Um, and so still more educational to continue to be ongoing there. 20% of resistant infections are caused by germs from food or animals. We have a few cats. One of my children got an infection from, the doctor thinks it's from a cat. My wife is like, no way it came from that cat. 
She's very much a cat person. Anyhow, it showed up with some resistant strains. Now, fortunately, it wasn't a serious infection. It wasn't really that big of a deal, but the cultural sensitivity showed that it was resistant to some common antibiotics. So that leads us to what actually is, is happening in the United States to help with these drug-resistant infections. One, well, help prevent the infections and their spread. That's nice, right? But how do we actually do that? What are we actually putting in place to do that? You know, you see a lot more personal protective equipment, whatever variety, uh, or many different varieties in hospitals. That education is there. Nurses understand. Um, you see yellow bags for the, 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 the potential infected material. You see that being more prevalent than what we would have seen 15, 20 years ago. Um, follow guidelines. We all like to follow guidelines, right? Um, but, but follow guidelines. There are, is a plethora of guidelines on antimicrobial stewardship and what to do in the United States. Uh, and, again, in the United States, we have a lot of the technology and the resources available to actually follow those guidelines out. We'll talk about how that translates into the rest of the world, and many of you already know the answer to that story. Isolate patients. Again, most of our hospitals are going to single-patient rooms. They're not sharing, you know, hopefully, bugs back and forth with the person in the room beside them because usually there's not somebody in the room beside them. Now, again, many of you have been overseas. You know not only are there more than one person in that room, there might be more than one person in that bed. Um, and so that isolation idea is, is somewhat a foreign concept. I think, again, the whole Ebola outbreak a few years ago and that brought some of that more to the forefront, but it's very easy to fall back into old habits after that, just from a resource perspective. Um, so inform, make sure people understand, make sure people know what's going on. Again, United States, Joint Commission breathing down everybody's back in the hospital setting, you don't have a way to not do something um, or you guys are potentially going to get in a lot of trouble. Improve antibiotic prescribing. Again, there's all sorts of guidelines for that. The community-acquired pneumonia guidelines just changed, what, about a month or so ago, uh, maybe not even that long ago. And, and they're talking much more about resistance. They haven't been updated um, in about, I forget now, 10 to 15 years. So they were, the last guideline had really come out before a lot of focus had been put on to community-acquired pneumonia. So there's a much bigger chunk of those guidelines talking about resistance. Um, hospitals. The, some hospitals, I, I don't work in a hospital anymore, but I understand they're starting to put checks in place where you have to have more than maybe one prescriber sign off or more than one person understand what's going on. Same thing like what we saw happen with insulin a few years ago or many years ago, right, where more than one nurse might have to sign off that the right number of units of insulin were being given. And so some hospitals are going to that extreme. Are we really choosing the right antibiotic? Um, there's infectious disease teams, you know, made up of, 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 of prescribers, made up of pharmacists, made up of nurses, who are going around and reviewing all these patients who were started on whatever antibiotic overnight to make sure that we were really choosing the right one um, based on the information available. Um, long-term care, again, like I mentioned, we see a big increase in infections in long-term care that are multi-drug resistant. Um, C. diff being a very important one. Um, with the C. diff guidelines changing about a year ago, 
Um, getting away from metronidazole because most C. diff is resistant to metronidazole here in the United States and for, focusing more on fidaxomycin um, and, and vancomycin than, than what we would have done um, in, in the past. Be alert and take action. The nice thing we're able to do here fairly easily is monitor that infection. You know, we have follow-up with patients, or we do a culture and sensitivity um, to try to potentially, hopefully, de-escalate the therapy. Again, if we have a very sick individual, we're going to give one of the bigger antibiotic guns initially. But we're also taking that culture to try to get back and figure out, can we narrow that spectrum of activity or which antibiotics we're using to use the, the least powerful one necessary for that patient? Uh, we'll talk about that from a global perspective shortly. Um, prescribing, lab results, um, definitely go, go along with that as well. So, as we transition to, from the United States to what's actually happening in, in the rest of the world, what, those of you who have been in, in the field recently, what's been your perspective on antimicrobial prescribing or rec recommending in, in, the, in the third world countries? What have you seen recently? Again, I really haven't. I was in Haiti four years ago. It was kind of my last real medical mission sort of trip. Okay. And looking at the percentages that were maybe inappropriately treated, and, and then also some resources to look into, like how you know the resistance rates in these countries and places. So it sounds like we all need to go visit a poster downstairs about UTIs in Peru. It's the author here. Maybe they can, I can just give over the microphone for the rest of the discussion. Yes. <coughs> well, uh, the vast majority in Africa hospitals don't have a bacteriology laboratory. They can't do culture and sensitivity, and therefore uh, they just use broad-spectrum drugs routinely because they're trying to save the patient's life. And I right now am trying to set up a bacteriology laboratory in the little country of Burundi, okay. it's extremely difficult. So, and that's one of the things we're talking about coming, going forward, but, but if you couldn't hear him, what he was essentially saying is, in Africa, it's next to impossible to do that follow-up lab monitoring, the culture and sensitivity, and I imagine many of you have found that, and you're running into problems even trying to get one set up. Um, and so, I, I want to come back to that idea, because I think, hopefully, you know, can we come up with ideas collectively or something to, to try to improve that. But that's definitely what the literature is saying is, is just that. How many, how many others have experienced that, that you just can't do the follow-up culture and sensitivity? And so you're stuck using broad spectrums because you don't want, you're more concerned about that patient now than the drug resistance that might come up down the road. And, and that's very real, right? And so anyone else have anything they want to share? Yes. Yep, I'm on my leash. So the rapid testing. Sure. Mm -hmm. So the idea to, to try to, you know, absolutely. And, I, and I'm not real sure where the technology is at that we, all right, so we can identify this is strap, 
but can we really identify quickly that it's resistant or not? Or I think that technology is still very much in development. And it will be great when it actually comes out. Over here, yes. Vitamin C, Cipro, and we're, we'll come back to that. Well, actually, we can jump there now. I mean, what happens when that patient goes to the, the physician in, in, in India or wherever, and they have a fever, and they know how they feel, and they just get a prescription for Cipro, and they go, well, why am I going to go to the doctor next time? I can just go buy Cipro on my own, and they do it, right? Um, and so I was in Kenya. I went and bought Cipro on my own for myself at one point, and so... Definitely. Um, that happens. That's realistic. Do you have something as well? Uh, yeah, when I was in Honduras, I think one of the big things was we didn't have um, like oral forms of all the antibiotics, and so people having to come back for injections or IV antibiotics, and then having that access and the resources to be able to return to the clinic um, to, to be able to get those. So to re- be able to return to the clinic, to, is, it becomes problematic, and so... That can also increase resistance if they're not able to follow through with the full course of therapy that they had. Yeah. And I imagine we could go on and on. We all have stories like that. Do any of you work overseas in a developing country and have access to a lab where you can do some microbiology results? <laughs> Good point. To accurate microbiology results. And so, you know, seeing – what's that? Gram stains, are they accurate? Hopefully. Um, those are a little bit easier to figure out. There is a very good bacteriology laboratory at Aga Khan Hospital in Nairobi, but, of course, only expats or rich people right. can use it. And that becomes down the other thing. These things are, even in the United States, it's not necessarily cheap to run some of these things, to run these ambi- or run these, these pathogens through the lab to find out what actually is growing out. And that's where we get into to problems um, in a lot of the rest of the world as well. It's just the, the resources are just the finances, unfortunately, just are not there. So we've kind of already talked about this one as well. What are those barriers of that U.S. model? Where, again, we can go to pretty much any hospital. I, as far as I know, any hospital in the United States, we can get pretty good diagnostic results from a microbiology lab. Now, they may not be able to do everything right in the house, but they have somebody they can send it off to and get those results within, within a, a decent time frame. And the follow-up with the patients. You know, that patient needs IV antibiotics. We have that better access here. We have ways to provide transportation to them if that's the rate-limiting factor. We have ways um, a lot of times to get expensive medications to individuals as well, which we just don't have access to in many places. Um, so anyone else think of any other bear? I mean, it comes down to, to money most of the time, money and, and access. So, so drugs that are bought outside the U.S. may not be what you think they are. Um, and, and that is, is, are you guys seeing that's a growing problem? That, that is, you know, just because this says amoxicillin 500 milligrams, doesn't mean it's amoxicillin 500. It might be amoxicillin, but it might be 200 milligrams. And I think there's more and more reports, more and more data coming out um, regarding that as well. We've, we've done some stuff, um, even at Finley, just looking at um, this was particular cephalexin. We grabbed five different uh, manufacturers of cephalexin that I was able to purchase in Haiti a few years back. And they were all pretty close, but 
one was very much, one was like, one was 375 milligrams, it was supposed to be 500. Um, this is all, we should publish this, but it was a very small, it was just more of a curiosity thing. We were working with an agency um, who was looking, is it better to buy medications in the United States, or is it okay because it's even something like cephalexin was a lot cheaper in, in Haiti. And they kind of saw some of the results, and they're like, well, well, at least if we buy from the U.S., we theoretically know what we're getting, um, and, and hopefully better get better outcomes with our patients that way. This is a, a quick little video um, that talks about antibiotic re- resistance. This was produced by Doctors Without Borders um, and talks a little bit about some of the programs they're putting into place. So, so hopefully it plays here correctly. Maybe. I might need to push this. Or this. Ah. They brought me here to treat the bacteria that I have. Ali suffers from antibiotic resistance. Like almost 40% of the patients treated in this hospital. Antibiotic resistance mainly occur uh, because of misuse of antibiotics or even abuse of antibiotics. Honey also suffers from antibiotic resistance and stays in an isolation room too. We're ignorant about antibiotics. If one of us has fever, we immediately use antibiotics. We misuse antibiotics in general. To support these patients, MSF is providing psychological care, which I found interesting. Education is extremely important part when moving somebody to contact isolation because if patient understands why he is moved in contact isolation and what is drug resistance, then naturally they will become more compliant to the treatment. In Mosul, antibiotic resistance is an additional burden for patients injured during the recent conflict. MSF opened a post-operative care facility in 2018 and ensures that patients safely recover. The hospital is one of the only structures in the country providing adequate therapy to patients affected by antibiotic resistance. So when you think about a country the size of Iraq, and I didn't fact check this story at all, um, but to think that this one hospital is one of, on, of the only places where you can actually get proper treatment, proper care for antibiotic resistance, I, I don't know whether to use the word that's impressive or that's sad. Maybe impressively sad is the right term to use. When you think about how much money has come in from around the world into Iraq in the last 20 years or 20 plus years, and we're still not really combating something like antibiotic resistance to, to any real meaningful sort of thing. So, so Doctors Without Borders, and I have absolutely no ties to them, um, but they're one of many agencies or many organizations that are trying to do the right thing. But they're running into all the roadblocks, all the hurdles we've been talking about. And so a lot of times they have to go outside and do stuff on their own. And they'd rather partner with their, their, the, the people in country but it ends up being it's, it just becomes difficult, and they have to end up doing stuff on their own. So that, transitioning to what about antimicrobial stewardship globally? So resistance is a global problem. It, 
you talk about something like malaria, which is not a bacteria, but we see growing problems with resistance to common um, anti-malaria medications. So it's a global problem found throughout the world, and, and there's an asterisk there, and I'm going to come back to that. Causes, healthcare, again, improper prescribing, improper or no um, antibiotic, um, or any, any sort of, of guardianship or maintaining um, any sort of credibility with the antibiotics. Food, um, when you add antibiotics to animals, animals grow faster. They get... Um, they have better outcomes with, with animals if they get antibiotics kind of prophylactically. Lack of knowledge about the problem. So just antimicrobial stewardship. It would be interesting, I think, just to, to walk into random hospitals around the world and just survey the practitioners in, within those hospitals and just find out what they actually know. And it's, it's, it's not a problem of lack of, that they can't comprehend the idea. It's a problem that they just maybe don't know the, the problem exists. And, and that education, that missing education, I think is one of the, the ways that, that we can hopefully impact people. Lack of oversight. The governments of whatever country, they probably really do have bigger things to worry about than antimicrobial resistance in their day-to-day lives. And, and that's good and that's bad, um, right? And so that's, that's potentially another problematic. So now the asterisk. So, so if anyone out there was thinking about this, been found throughout the world, when I hear that statement, I would say, well, what about Antarctica? Really? Have we found antibiotic resistance in Antarctica? That's just me, and I my, have to, my wife just would slap me upside the head um, when I say that sort of thing. But... Yes, we found antibiotic resistance in Antarctica. There have been many studies. I have, I have two here that, that talk about finding antibiotic resistance. Um, one was in penguins, and one was just in some melted ice. Um, they were finding that, that we have an, truly antibiotic resistance globally. Now, again, some of that in Antarctica, you know, I don't know of many veterinary clinics in Antarctica that are giving antibiotics to the penguins, but some of that is probably just nature going through nature's course and developing antibiotic resistance there. And so that's something we're never really going to escape um, either. So, so this is, is probably not projecting real well, but this um, was published by Forbes uh, a couple years ago and is looking at deaths attributable to antibiotic or antimicrobial resistance every year compare, compared to other causes of death. So, so this is antimicrobial resistance right now. And this is um, right about 700,000, about 700,000 compared to everything else around the world. And this was from 2012. So this data is, is a little bit old. This particular study was projecting that by 2050, there will be 10 million deaths um, per year due to antimicrobial resistance. To put that into perspective, Cancer is about 8.2 million. Cholera is around 100,000. Diabetes about 1.5 million. So it's going from this fairly, fairly small but significant to just kind of exploding. Um, part of the problem is there haven't been a whole slew of new antibiotics recently that have come to market that we can really use to combat this. And the ones that have come out, show me the money. Um, they're very, very expensive. And so that's not going to help things um, around the world either. 
This is looking at deaths attributed to AMR every year by 2050. So this is using that 10 million number. And you can see most of the deaths are going to occur right around a little over 4 million or close to 5 million in Asia, a little over 4 million in Africa, and then substantially less, which is what we would probably expect to find in most of the rest of the world. Um, so between Asia and Africa, they're projecting um, roughly 8 to 9 deaths per 10,000 people um, due to antimicrobial resistance by 2050, if things continue on the same track. Some people, some of the stuff I was reading, thinks that this 50 million number is on the very low side. Um, and again, it, it's hard to predict what's going to happen. Hopefully with education, um, that 50 million number ends up you know, being uh, similar to, to what actually happens at, at worst. So this is just another example of antimicrobial resistance. This was a, an article that was published um, from Nepal. And, and I know you can't see this, um, but again, looking at Pseudomonas in Nepal, they found 96% in this one place, 96% of, of Pseudomonas isolates were resistant to Cipro, um, 62 or 63% to Imipenem, 63% to Genomycin, um, over 90% to Ceftazidime as well. And again, this, this list went on and on and on. This is just a snapshot, but they looked at Klebsiella, Strep Pneumo, um, and, and again, they're just finding a lot of resistance to these problems. So in 2010 or so, the World Health Organization, WHO, started kind of silently, I don't want to say silently, slightly ringing the alarm bells on this from a global perspective. Um, definitely that's when stuff was really ramping up here in the United States. You couldn't walk into a hospital um, or work in a hospital and not hear some sort of antimicrobial resistant plan um, starting to be put into place. So, so the World Health Organization's... It, has this plan of improving awareness and understanding. So again, just making sure that clinicians around the world are aware that this is an ongoing problem. Strengthen knowledge and evidence through surveillance and research. Again, this is, this is truly a situation where we don't know what we don't know. That phrase is somewhat becoming cliche, but it's truly, I mean, it's, it's very real. And so when you're working with these patients in Nigeria, when you're working with these patients in Kenya, Maybe you're working in an area where there's very little antimicrobial resistance to a particular bug. Maybe you're working in an area where that antibiotic and that bug, it's never going to work for that patient. And again, due to the lack of laboratories, due to the lack of, of microbiology in, in many of these places, that's just data we, we have zero access to and we would love to. Again, walk into any hospital in the United States and, and they might complain a little bit if you ask for some sort of report over the isolates over the last six months, last year, but that's something, that's data that lab can put together um, with, with the information they have. Uh, reduce the incidence of infection through effective sanitation, just proper hygiene. Again, we've all been there, we've all seen, um, you know, some places they're very good at washing their hands after they use the restroom but maybe not before they start eating or, you know, just there's, there's a lot of hygiene education that can still happen. Optimize use of antimicrobial medications in both humans and animals, trying to do a better job about that. And develop economic case for sustainable investment. So coming back to that, where do we get the funds? Where do we make this more economically feasible to help put in place around the world? 
So, so that's what the World Health, or, well, World Health Organization is looking at. What they're calling, uh, or, or, we'll, we'll come back to that idea in a little bit. Global research and antimicrobial resistance. Overall, you know, yes, I've found data from Nigeria. There's data from Nepal. Um, there's data on penguins in Antarctica. But try to find data for the particular city or the particular country you're at, and, and that data may or may not be there. Um, and again, that data, even the stuff I found in Nepal was from 2018. Does that mean it's still relevant now? Those numbers have probably increased. And so that data is, is constantly in flux. Ideally, we'd have more standardized information available. Absolutely. Logistics, economics prevent this. We've been talking about that. So that's where the World Health Organization, they're, what they're calling the GLASS, G-L-A-S-S program comes into play. So, so what is GLASS? What data are we actually, or is, is WHO actually trying to get? So it stands for Global Antimicrobial Surveillance System by World Health Organization. Sounds great. So far. Aims to share antimicrobial resistance information globally. Again, that's a great idea. Consists of three core components, surveillance sites, um, national reference library, and national coordinating center. So right now, the, the WHO is in the process of finding these surveillance sites, developing these three things. And some countries are, have, have very much been on board and said, yep, we've got this, um, this lab in whatever city that will be able to do that for our country. Um, and they can also perform the, 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 they can perform the role of the National Reference Library and National Coordinating Center. So we have a lot of countries who have signed up for this. We have several countries who have been signed up for several years of this. And we have several countries, or many countries probably is a better term, that have submitted absolutely zero data to this. Um, so, so it's being put into place. The framework is being laid. Um, the, the, the backbone, the structure is there, but then actually getting that data is where we're still at. Why? A lot of it comes down back to the economics. You know, the, the, I, you know and again, we don't know for sure, but I, I imagine some, some of these countries, we, we definitely know, it's a lack of funding, right? This is a great program, to, a great idea to think about, but then who's going to pay for it? Where's the funds to get that data actually into the labs and then out of the labs and, and report to World Health Organization? So there's eight bacteria. They, they're not trying to be all-encompassing. They're really focused on, at this point in time, these eight bacteria. E. coli, Klebsiella pneumoniae, Actinobacter, um, Staph aureus, Strep pneumo, Salmonella, Shigella, Gonorrhea. Uh, so fairly common, the, the sort of, of bugs that you would want data on, at least at a minimum. Four specimen types. They're looking at blood, they're looking at urine, they're looking at stool, they're looking at genital swabs. Uh, which, again, is, is somewhat all-encompassing. Um, you know, we still are missing some, some areas, but, again, it's, it's a good starting place. So their overall goal is to get this data to pour in. And that's the part that's not really happening. Yes, the U.S. has submitted data, and Canada has submitted data, and Germany, and, and you know, Australia and New Zealand, and, and the countries that you would expect are submitting data, but those are the countries where we probably already had good data to begin with. The countries where we're missing that good data are the ones that 
again, I completely understand. It's, it's a lack of funds, it's a lack of economics um, to be able to actually do this. But once they get this data, the plan is then, all right, what do we do with it next? And what WHO is hoping to do is to then broaden it, then expand it. All right, now that we know we have, and I'm just making this up, now that we know we have this problem in Colombia with E. coli resistance, where are we actually seeing that develop? Is it coming from animals that are being given antibiotics and we're getting resistance developed that way? Or is it from people who are just going to the pharmacy and getting their vitamin Cipro for any time they have a fever? Um, what actually, what's the epidemiology of that sort of thing? So is it food chain, is it environmental, um, antimicrobial use, and then try to begin making more appropriate recommendations there. Um, again, I applaud WHO for, for taking these steps as a global organization to do it, but to some extent, they're missing the very important part of how do we actually get places, get people to do this. And that's, you know, I, no one has the right answer, I don't think, for that. So, back to what can we do for this. So, so what do you think? Maybe the, this question should be, have any of you been on, without naming any organizations, um, but any trips where there has been talk of any way, shape, or form about antimicrobial resistance from like a leadership level? And what to do, what not to do. Seeing a couple head nods, but not a whole lot. And I think that's still generally probably where we're at because it's nice to think about, but what do we actually do with that? Again, when you have this patient who's acutely ill and you know you're not going to get any lab data ever, um, what is, is the point of kind of working through this? So, but having said that, in an ideal world, what do you think short-term mission trips could do to help improve antimicrobial stewardship? In an ideal world. That's big picture it. Yes. Well, I'm interested in a bacteriology laboratory. That's never short term. Right. Never. Right. Never, ever. And so short term is never going to address And so then the next one, maybe we'll go to the next slide. What can long term? And I think, so, so from short term, it's hard, right? Without that data to begin with, it's hard. Now, I think you can do, and this depends on how you define short-term. Um, if it's short-term and there's no, like, existing clinic or no existing infrastructure that you're going and being a part of, then it's hard to do this. If you're doing short-term but with a long-term, you know, sort of clinic where maybe you can have this lab, then theoretically that's where it becomes maybe a little bit more feasible. But you said you were running into problems, and I imagine some of those are financial. Uh, in Burundi countries in East Africa, the patients can only afford to pay $1 per culture and sensitivity test. That means it has to be subsidized. Yep. It must be. In order to keep the price down, we have to go back to the way we did it in the 50s and the 60s, all glassware. So I can hire a glassware washer and autoclave. Sure. Uh, but I can still probably only get it down to about 4 or $5 per test, and that's still too much. And if you know about culture and sensitivity, you've you got to be doing 20 or 30 a day. Otherwise, making media and doing the long-term stuff, it will never work. So those are the problems, but they can be overcome 
with a little bit of money. I'm actually impressed to hear that you can get it down to four or five dollars. Um, I think that's great. Still, eighty percent off um, well, of what I found a trained microbiologist from Chad, who's, worked, who's willing to run the place for a thousand a month, as opposed to sure. five or ten. For Were you guys able to hear him? I should have asked that question. Um, good. Okay. So again, resources, financial. So, so does WHO have grants to help some of this out? From, from what I could tell, and, and I have to admit, I didn't do a deep dive into glass as far as um, where it's at, um, but, but I didn't come across anything about grants. Um, they were, there was definitely mention that these countries needed to be able to do this on their own, um, that the funding would have to be somewhat internally, which, yes, is a laugh, um, but I don't know if they can apply for some sort of grant. So if you wanted to do in Burundi, could you apply for a research grant to help get this off the board? I don't know the answer to that. But any other ideas on what long-term missions can do? I think some of that comes back. I forget someone over here mentioned just the IV antibiotics just getting them to come back instead of having to admit them somewhere, which may or may not even be an option. Um, that's more probable with a long-term sort of clinic that maybe you're partnered with. Um, and and it's, it's one of the things. It's someone else? Yes? Education of both, and I think it's both the, 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 the clinics and the, and the people working there is also the public um, doing the same thing. You know, when you go into a, a cholera country, how all the, the posters and everything all over the place about cholera and how to not get it and um, Zika and the Caribbean and stuff, and you go into those countries and you see the posters all over the place. So, so I think a lot of it's education all around. Don't just go buy Cipro when you're whatever antibiotic. I keep picking on Cipro. Um, when you have a fever, um, but get that education. Try to get that clinical environment. Now, and again, that's part of the problem, but then if they go to the clinician and, and they prescribe Cipro, then it's like, well, I, I could have done that. I knew that. And, and so it, it's education all around. Anyone else? Yes? Don't make the problem bigger than what it are. And I think and that's absolutely true. And that was, um, I think I, I took this, that slide out. But one of the other things I thought about talking about was what should short-term mission, what should they do? Because it seems like, and I expected this, that there's not much we can do because we're limited in the, the availability of, of stuff. And so that's, that's of, of information we may need or may want for, with regards to cultural sensitivity. 
but what should we be doing? And that's kind of what this one, what tools would help improve that? Again, having that microbiology lab that we could partner with in some way, shape, or form. Um, is there a way, is there a mechanism um, to provide funding for some of these places? And, and it's, it, realistically, could every single town in Kenya or, you know, whatever have their own little microbiology thing? And the answer, obviously, is, is probably not. But could we get a centralized one and maybe a few outlying or in Mexico, you know, could we – Actually, Mexico is doing it, from what I could tell, an okay job some of the time, better than most countries. Um, but, but how could we do that? So what tools would be most valuable to you, maybe not to improve antimicrobial stewardship, but to provide education, maybe, is another thing to think about? You think of anything that, you know, I think it would just be nice for some organization, somebody to come up with some of those pamphlets that we could um, hand out to, to patients, hey, you know what, you saw the doctor today and you were expecting, an like just like in the United States, right, you're expecting an antibiotic and you didn't get one. But, but here's why. Um, here, and here's why you shouldn't just go buy an antibiotic anytime you have a fever. Um, and then also provide pamphlets, you know, that you could leave with people there. I, I think that would be huge. And maybe somebody is doing that. I, I couldn't find anything quickly. Um, when I was searching, but but maybe somebody is doing that. But I think that would be potentially um, a, a good thing to to put out there. And, and realistically, is is not a real expensive thing. I think if we could find a way to subsidize clinics or microbiology labs, um, that is huge. You know, how, how do we get Bill Gates to jump on that bandwagon? Um, and, and I think that is is as well a, a nice thing to to think about. Um, so I'm running out of time. I want to leave a few minutes for, for questions. Um, so, so one last self-assessment question. Uh, which of the following is most appropriate when educating a patient in rural Kenya about antibiotic use? I promise this is an easy one. A, go to the pharmacy and buy seven days' worth of an antibiotic anytime you have a fever. No. Um, stop taking the antibiotic as soon as you feel better. Um, counsel the patient on the differences between a viral and bacterial infection. That's supposed to be the right answer. And then buy some vitamin C Cipro just in case. I knew we were going to go down the Cipro road. Um, and so, again, coming down to that education, I, I think, is a huge thing both um, for the patients, um, for the physicians in country, and for physicians who might be going from the United States or other places to help those patients. Um, that becomes an important thing. Um, so common sense. This is, is one of my struggles with antibiotic resistance is, is, to some extent, largely combating it seems like common sense, right? But keep that in mind when you're in the middle of nowhere with no access to anything. Again, we've talked about this theme, right? You're going to use broad spectrum because you, you don't want that patient to go downhill, and so you want to be sure that they're covered, um, so, again, limited selection of antibiotics is another, uh, another problem, and sometimes it's a good problem, sometimes it's a bad problem. And then zero idea of local resistance patterns in the area you're at. Parting thought, I found this, this quote, and I'll read this to you. Um, in one of the articles I was reading at, the article was called Short-Term Medical Missions Toward an Ethical Approach, um, which I think was something we all would want. But the quote was this by, by the author, Garrick uh, Malik, who I don't know. Um, I would argue for fewer short-term medical missions, which cuts right in our soul many ways, uh, and more long-term options with sustainable results. Right? I think, yes, that the idea of cutting short-term missions 
hurts us. But, when you read the rest of that, more long-term options with sustainable results. This requires a systematic approach in planning, implementation, and evaluation. In addition, programs should identify local individuals who may already have the skills necessary, such as a doctor from Chad, um, to sustain interventions as well as ongoing communication. If we desire to take our skills abroad, we must commit to communities in which we serve. And, and I think in working with GMHC for, for many years, I think many of our, the attendees here, they have this in mind. I think some of the times when we hear of local churches or other organizations that, oh, I'm going to Haiti, I'm going wherever, um, they may or may not be um, always thinking about this sort of thing. But I think that idea of a sustainable culture that we can actually have an impact on um, is very important to keep in mind. So again, if you have questions, if you would like copies of these slides or any of the data that was in it, um, send me an email. Um, you probably can't read this. Mosler, M-O-S-L-E-R, at Finley, F-I-N-D-L-A-Y, dot E-D-U. Or you're welcome um, to, to come up here and grab a business card or talk with me afterwards. But does anyone have any parting questions before you guys go get your food? The all, I forget, chicken Caesar wrap, I think I saw was on the menu. So I guess everybody walked by there, didn't you, to get here probably. So Any questions? Or Yes, go ahead. So I think a good or maybe one short-term trip answer is I've noticed an increase in um, public health education on short-term trips. It's like one of the stations. Yep. And mainly it's usually like hand-washing and nutrition. And so I think for like the people who are leading these short-term missions trips, like having a voice now to say, hey, let's add – Add that as an educational goal, I think, is a good thing. To talk about the differences between viral infections and bacteria and why does that matter. And, um, you know, and, and that can be a difficult thing in some cultures to get across. Um, but I think absolutely. What can we do to help improve education is, is key to, to that, or is, is definitely one of the keys outside of winning a billion dollars in a lottery that we could donate to start microbial labs. Anything else? Well, thank you very much for your participation, for your answering questions and letting me quiz you a little bit. Um, again, please don't hesitate to get a hold of me, um, either you know right now or by, via email afterwards. Um, I, I truly enjoy working with people, and I truly enjoy hearing, especially on this topic, what other ideas that might be out there that we're, we're just not aware of, and how could we make them more more aware out in the world um, at large. So, all right, thank you. Enjoy your rest of your time here at Global Missions.